If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor, and I'm joined today by our features editor, Rob Attar. Hello. Coming up in this podcast. Its development represents what a very influential brand of British imperial thinking would have liked the rest of America to look like. Professor Peter Thompson on the foundation of Bermuda. There weren't many liberals in those days. They liked to see the criminals executed in public. And the worse the criminal was, the more they wanted to see him suffer. Sean McGlynn talks us through the medieval mindset on brutality. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later. Now then, Rob, you've been finding out about the history of Bermuda. So introduce us to the subject, please. Sure. Well, 400 years ago, a group of English people were shipwrecked on the uninhabited islands of Bermuda. So began a fascinating story of English settlement that encompassed slavery, mutiny and forcible transportations. Oxford historian Peter Thompson has written about the history of Bermuda in our latest issue. And recently I spoke to him about the turbulent birth of this remote part of the British Empire. For those listeners who might not be aware of this, could you please tell me where exactly Bermuda is? Bermuda is about 600 miles off the coast of mainland United States of America, roughly on the latitude of the Carolinas, and about 900 miles north of the Bahamas, so in the southwest side of the North Atlantic Basin. It's about 3,500 miles from England. Do we know when the islands of Bermuda were first discovered? German mapmakers in the late 15th century believed as a fact that the Bermuda archipelago had been discovered in the 6th century by St. Brendan. That's probably not true. But in 1503, we do know that Juan de Bermudez, a Spanish adventurer, discovered the archipelago chain and reported it to Spanish authorities as a possible base for Spanish galleons on the route from Central America to Spain. Unbeknownst to the English in 1604, another Spaniard, Diego Ramirez, had conducted a thorough survey of the archipelago. And it was known to the English, certainly from the late 16th century, Sir Richard Grenville had captured a Spanish galleon off Bermuda and speculated that the British could use the island chain as a base for privateering. How did English settlers first arrive on the islands? By accident, by one of these great historical accidents, in the summer of 1609, the Virginia Company of London sent a fleet of nine ships across the Atlantic to reinforce and resupply the emerging colony of Virginia and the settlement at Jamestown. Sometime in July, this fleet of nine very small ships, the largest one was just 100 feet long, was hit by a tropical storm and scattered. The largest of the ships, the Sea Venture, was wrecked on the island of Bermuda. But the survivors were able to salvage enough material from the wreck to build two pinnaces and make their way on to Virginia. And that's the moment at which settlement begins. Ironically, the first permanent settlement involves the story of how the first Englishman on Bermuda managed to get off it. So the, the original settlers at Bermuda, then some of them came back, didn't they, to properly settle the islands? Yes. Two ships were formed from the wreckage of the Sea Venture during the winter of 1609-10. Both of these 
originally went to Virginia. Incidentally, this is a crucial moment in the history of Virginia. One of them, commanded by Sir George Summers, who was a career sailor, returned to Bermuda ostensibly to gather supplies for the Virginians. Summers was particularly enamored of Bermuda and in many ways could be considered Bermuda's founding father. He died in Bermuda in 1610, but his nephew vowed to return his body to England and to raise money and interest in a permanent settlement on the islands. The other Bermuda survivor from the wreck of the sea venture, Sir Thomas Gate, also returned to England in 1610 and also touted the possibility of a permanent British settlement on the islands. These promotional activities were greatly aided by the circulation of a manuscript which has become known to us as a true repository of the wreck and miraculous deliverance of the sea venture, written by one of the survivors, William Strachey. Strachey's account may have influenced Shakespeare's Tempest, but in all events, during 1610-1611, Virginia survivors and the Virginia Company investors lobbied the Crown for a charter to establish a permanent colony on the islands. This was granted in 1612, and the first fleet of permanent settlers destined for the islands set sail in April 1612, 60 settlers under the command of Governor Richard Moore. These pioneers began creating a settlement on what is now known as St George's Island. What was so attractive about Bermuda that made all these people want to come back there? It was strategically attractive because it was close enough to serve as an English base for privateering raids against Spanish galleons, but far enough away from inhabited Spanish and French islands of the Caribbean for it to be easily attacked. It also had very large natural reserves of fish and seabirds, seabirds that were, to all intents and purposes, unused to humans and could be slaughtered and killed with ease. In addition, earlier visitors had left pigs on the island to breed, and they did breed and increase very naturally. Thus, there was a plentiful supply of food, a very benign climate, and a strategic imperative or strategic importance to the island chain. The colony was set up in the early 17th century. Did it develop similarly to other British colonies in North America? Yes and no. In many ways, the importance of Bermuda is that its development represents what a very influential strand of British imperial or colonizing thinking would have liked the rest of America to look like. It was a strongly hierarchical society. The islands were divided by survey in 1616, 1617 into nine so-called tribes, each tribe notionally belonging to the chief investors of the Summers Island Company, and within each tribe, a strict hierarchy of command, liberty, and privilege. 17th century English society was chaotic, partly due to population growth, and there was a strong sense within political imagining in the English world that what was needed was for people to know their place, stay in their place, settle within a strict hierarchy, because the alternative was anarchy. Most of the founding fathers of Virginia, Summers, Gates, had experience serving with the English army in the Low Countries. That's where they cut their teeth. It came naturally to them to imagine a strongly hierarchical society. 
and indeed engravings uh, of the Bermuda from the 1620s show the islands divided up into these tribes, each tribe having a fort, little pictures of officers commanding men to do work for the common good and not run off and just live off the bounty of the land. Of course, bound up with this is that very quickly, Bermuda settlers purchased slaves and began to import slaves to grow tobacco. Some of the earliest slave legislation in the British Atlantic world comes from Bermuda, particularly important. The first legislative statement that the child of a female slave is enslaved for life, that's the first statement of that position, the so-called matrilineal descent. It comes from Bermuda in 1654. If English colonial administrators had had their way, this strongly hierarchical system of government would have been mapped on to the mainland colonies. To some extent, it was mapped on to Virginia and then later in the 17th century, South Carolina. So that the significance within the overall portfolio of British colonial possessions of Bermuda is greater than its ostensible size. It represents what a certain section of English political imagination would have wished to see spread across other colonies. And indeed, there are strong links between Virginia and Bermuda. Virginia in the 16-teens had the same legal code as Bermuda, a strongly authoritarian, very harsh legal code. There are many place names in Virginia which suggest this linkage. There was a Bermuda 100 in Virginia, for example, and many of the personnel, the governmental officials of both colonies, served in both colonies, as indeed did many of the investors. So there are strong links between Bermuda and the mainland colonies. Did plenty of people from England go over to settle Bermuda? No, this is the downside, of course, of the hierarchical system, that insofar as you can imagine a potential emigrant weighing up where to go in the 1630s, let's say, particularly if that potential emigrant with a free choice, particularly if that emigrant was religiously motivated, would not choose to go to Bermuda. They would prefer to go to one of the New England colonies and later in the 17th century, preferably Pennsylvania. So that the Englishmen who settled Bermuda were largely there by compulsion, and the islands did not attract voluntary emigrants in any significant degree, which is one reason why the employment of slave labor appealed to Bermudans. But, for example, during the English Civil War, political prisoners and Irish and Scottish victims of what was essentially ethnic cleansing were forcibly transported to Bermuda and as other Caribbean destinations, notably Barbados, as a sort of punishment. This indicate how comparatively unattractive life under the governmental system of Bermuda was in this early period. And am I right to say that the English crown became involved later in that century? From 1612 to 1684, Bermuda was notionally the property of a private investment company called the Somers Island Company, whose chief backers were also typically coterminous with the investors in the original Virginia project. The charter of the Summer Island Company gave the company considerable rights, a sort of quasi-independent status. They could initiate their own system of government, make their own laws, providing these were conformable to the laws of England, and providing that they paid English taxes and duties on any products that they created. That claim was quashed in 1684 by Charles II as part of a much wider campaign of imperial reform, a campaign designed to bring these quasi-independent colonies strictly under crown control. 
This is a great project of the incoming James II, Charles II's brother, and led to the creation of a super colony in the northern mainland of America, the so-called Dominion of New England, which in turn, on news of the Glorious Revolution in England, precipitated what in some ways is America's first revolution against an arbitrary crown control. So for the first two generations of settlement, the islands were loyal to the crown, but governed by a private investment company and its appointees. When the crown took over, did that have a big impact on life in Bermuda? Not particularly, because by this time, the dream of using Bermuda and its natural resources to return a profit to private investors had proven wanting. The main crop of Bermuda in the first two generations of settlement was tobacco, and it wasn't a particularly high grade of tobacco. And in any case, once Virginia and Maryland and other English Caribbean islands started growing tobacco, so the more tobacco produced, the lower the price was. There wasn't really much profit there. Ironically, that was good news for Bermuda because it encouraged the islanders or certainly the wealthier islanders to experiment with other forms of making money and Bermuda began from really mid-17th century to develop a healthy shipping and shipbuilding industry. Something of the original dream of Sir George Somers and Sir Thomas Gates, i.e. that Bermuda would be an island supply base for mainland colonies, began to be realized. So the assumption of crown control to some extent hastened this development, although the operation of the Navigation Acts also hindered it. The English were determined that the carrying trade of the Atlantic should be, insofar as possible, conducted by English ships. And one of the great debates of the late 17th and down into the 18th century, one of the great political debates is whether an English colony counts as English under the definition and operation of the Navigation Acts. So the crown control made little difference, although in terms of the way of life, economic way of life of the islands, but it did cleanse the island's legal code of some of the last vestiges of the draconian early generation. That was Peter Thompson of Oxford University. His feature on Bermuda is in the August issue of the magazine. Other island-based coverage in the mag this month includes a history of castaways. We haven't got a podcast interview on that, though, I'm afraid, but you can read up on the subject on our brand new website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. Hold on, though, it's launching next week, uh, probably around the 17th of August. So from that point on, there'll be all manner of diverting reading there. So do go and have a look. Yes, and we'd love to get your feedback on the website, this podcast and the magazine. And in order to do this, BBC magazines have set up something called BBC Magazine Insiders. Readers, podcast listeners and website users who sign up to BBC Magazine Insiders are invited to take part in regular online surveys. To join up, just fill in the questionnaire at www.bbcmagazineinsiders.com. We'd appreciate your feedback. Right, in our last podcast, we covered the story of the restoration of Dover Castle, taking it back to its medieval glory. We're getting medieval on you again now with a discussion of a life in the Middle Ages was as nasty and brutish as you might imagine. Sean McGlynn lectures on the subject and has written a book, By Sword and Fire, Cruelty and Atrocity in Medieval Warfare, which goes on sale in paperback this month. He's written a feature for the August issue of the magazine all about the brutality of war, and I spoke to him earlier to find out more. In your book and in the piece that you've written for the magazine, you chart how cruel the Middle Ages were. So how cruel were they? What, what was it like? Well, we think of the Middle Ages as being particularly barbaric. 
uh, one I write about in my book is I try and place that in the context of the time, but I draw a lot of modern comparisons. With violence in the Middle Ages and cruelty, I think there's a greater preponderance of it. Um, but human nature being constant, which is something that academic historians often tend to overlook, um, we tend to see it as being Middle Ages particularly barbaric, but we're much more civilised today. But even as recently as the 19th century in 1850 in Prussia, uh, criminals were being, a woman was executed on, by being broken on the wheel, a public ex, uh, display of execution, um, which is when you're tied to a wheel, like, like a cartwheel, and then broken with a smaller wheel, wooden wheel or hammers. For the straightforward criminals, you'd be a blow to the head or the neck for instant death, but otherwise you could be processed up from the feet upwards to increase the, the pain and suffering. And that was only in, in, in the 19th century. And even today in parts of the world, we have public executions. So it's more a call for law and order, I think, um, and to deal with the problem of a violent world rather than being more violent in itself. In the Middle Ages, there were fewer prisons. If you were a criminal, you were unlikely to be a resident or a guest of the crown. Um, you had to be dealt with quickly. There was, there was obviously law and order enforcement, but we didn't have the police forces and things like that. And the nature of society, where most people work with their hands and with tools, an argument could quickly get out of hand and lead to um, picking up your spade or your pickaxe. And most violent crime was committed in that context with tools of the trade rather than with just, say, uh, swords or daggers or axes, something like that. So people needed to respond to that by having to be able to see instant justice. Um, there weren't many liberals in those days. They liked to see the criminals executed in public. And the worse the criminal was, the more they wanted to see them suffer. So they would um, demand to see it, not just so that they could see that the authorities were acting on their behalf to protect them from disorder, but also so that it was a warning signal to other people, uh, other potential criminals, that if you inflict these um, crimes on our society, then we will deal with you in this way. Okay. Now, what about um, violence and cruelty, specifically in warfare, then? Because that's what you're talking about in the in the piece in the magazine. How does that differ from uh, a day-to-day um, uh, examination of, of, of criminality, for instance? I mean, what, warfare is obviously a very different kettle of fish, so what, where, where do we stand there? Up to a point, but a lot of times the military leaders were trying to establish... Uh, the, the ultimate military leader was the king or the prince, so he's trying to establish his authority, and he would use mass executions, um, the sacking and massacring of cities, as a way of displaying his authority. So in that sense, it wasn't so different from uh, from crime. I, I, in my book, I write a chapter on crime, showing that the medieval mindset towards crime, and that can be translated actually into warfare as as a sign of saying as a warning, this will happen to you if you don't succumb to my authority as a king. Mm. So um, a lot of the time they try, a lot of the leaders try to dress things up in terms of these people are treasonous or these people have gone against me in some way or they, they haven't fulfilled their obligations to me and therefore they deserve punishment. And they would often try and wrap things up in that kind of uh, approach. But really, a lot of the time... They're hiding their true motives, which is these are excuses to carry out hard and fast and cruel acts to um, achieve what I call the military imperative so that they could attack and uh, be quite brutal in their their strategic areas so that they can achieve their military objectives 
by carrying by using weaponers of fear by carrying the population into submission. Mm. So let's just go back. Would you say then that warfare was a crueler process in the medieval period than it is today? No, not no. I wouldn't really. Um, depends on which part of the world you're talking about. In the Western civilized world, I mean, how we operate in Afghanistan, as in the Western powers, is obviously very different to how the mid. mid- armies operated in the Middle Ages. But a more direct comparison would come, say, in the African states where there's local war in Africa. There you'll see the kind of warfare, um, executions, mutilations, massacres, that are deployed in a very similar way as they were done in the Middle Ages. But one of the things that got me interested in writing the book, for a long time medieval historians have said that the sources from the Middle Ages, talking about the war, mainly written by monks, they were kind of an hysterical bunch the, the, the approach was they were worried about warfare impinging upon their monasteries, losing resources to armies. But yeah, the monks were ex- exaggerating. But in fact, when it, in the mid-90s, when the war was on it going on in Yugoslavia, they, um, some of the atrocities and things happened there were really un- incredibly vile, very hard to, to believe. But in Europe, in the, at the end of the 20th century, the kind of atrocities going on there were very similar to some of the things that happened in the Middle Ages. And in my book, in the last chapter, I compare some of the most extreme cases of cruelty and atrocities, uh, which some historians think are prime examples of exaggeration, and compare them directly to events um, in places like Yugoslavia, Vietnam, um, and other areas in the 20th century, to show that actually this is a constant. In fact, in my book, in the front frontispiece, I use a George Orwell quote. He's talking about the Spanish Civil War. And he, he says that, basically, that... What we must keep our eye on in the, with the, with the atrocities is that they, the very fact that they are repeated in war after war after war is a reflection of the sick fantasies of people being carried out because we're in a state of war. Because um, when you think about it, war is a time when law and order breaks down. People are expected to kill other people. Um, there, there aren't the same restraints on, uh, on, on people. Um, and often the, policy, the actual policy of the authority is to kill other people. So within that context, uh, we, we see the same sort of brutalities. We see it in World War II as well, um, the Russians invading uh, in Berlin. Um, and anywhere there's war, you get these types of atrocities. Different scales, uh, different formats, widespread. And was there, were there any particular conditions within warfare that led to particularly unpleasant and violent um, actions. For instance, I mean, in your piece of the magazine, you focused specifically on the Albigensian Crusade, and that's got uh, a, a religious backdrop to it. So does if, if it was a, a war fought on religious grounds rather than on territorial grounds, does that mean that, that people were able or inclined to be more violent? It can do, it because there is another reason to demonize the enemy they're different from us and therefore it's easier to dehumanize them and then treat them as not being of worth but at the same time in the example of crusades the crusades show just as many examples of the type of warfare that was fought in what we call the feudal or chivalric west uh, as as anything else muslims and christians exchanged prisoners they agreed truces during the famines and that they would agree to stop fighting so war was basically the same, wherever the, the um, Western war as well. Warfare was basically the same. So religion could add an extra dimension, but coming back to what I was saying earlier, it could also add an extra excuse, an, a, an extra cover for the military imperative, because, for example, uh, when Richard 
executed two and a half thousand or more Muslim prisoners at Acre. It was yeah, Richard Lanhut, sorry, yes. Um, it is quite feasible to say, well, these were non-believers, their lives don't matter. But he, he didn't kill them for religious reasons. reasons. He killed them because um, he had military considerations to, to, to cover. Uh, he couldn't look after the prisoners. There's a danger they could break out and he'd have to leave too many men behind to look after them. So even areas of religion, uh, I think it's more of an excuse to cover some of the, the hard and... and cruel aspects of warfare. So mm. I think it's, 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 a, it's a cover, I think, more than anything. It, it can add to it, certainly, in certain individuals and at certain times, absolutely. But you can see the types of atrocities that happened on Crusades. You can see similar things happening um, in the West as well, mm. with massacres of prisoners. I mean, religion's a very, very interesting part of the medieval experience, isn't it? And you can, you can understand how cruelty could have been manifested between on the crusades between christians and muslims where there was a, a clear difference between it between the viewpoint but where does where does the the role of the western church sit in in uh, conflicts between christians because you you have the the impression that in the middle ages people were a lot more god for it fearing they went to church and 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 the view on 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 religion was a lot stronger then so surely that was a moderating influence and would have stopped people from from elements of cruelty against one another up to a point and the church were foremost in this field because they were some of the most vulnerable people um if an army marauding army came into your area into your monastery was going to be hard pressed to defend itself against it or your church your 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 arable land your resources be destroyed so they were very much at the forefront of it so in the 11th century you have the truce of god the peace of god these were things to try and minimize the extent of the fighting but at the end of the day military the military imperative was too important for any one factor to 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 stop it. Therefore, you would think um, fighting on a Sunday would be Christian soldiers would do it, but that was common. Easter weekend, Easter Sunday fighting, the holiest time of the year for Christians, major battles occurred occurred then. So the church did try and, and mitigate it up to a point. One can be very cynical and say, yes, they had their own. Um, land and property to defend but also there was the idea that you shouldn't be spilling Christian blood it's better to spill uh, come back to religion Muslim blood rather than Christian blood but there's only so much they could do and of course bishops and other leading ecclesiastics were landowners they supplied men for the army Uh, so in in Germany in the Middle Ages some of the worst feuding was between the bishops and the princes some of the worst fighting so yes it was a mitigating factor but only at certain times and in certain areas. It wasn't a constant. Mm. And wh- what about chivalry, the concept of chivalry? Where does that fit in all this? I mean, we have this idea that the noble knights, you know, wandered around and, and, and engaged in, in thoroughly honourable conflicts rather than the, the, the sort of wars that we see today. Is there, is there any truth in that? Not, not really, because you have to remember the knight was a very expensively trained killing machine. So if we talk about Chaucer's very perfect gentle knight, he wouldn't be much use on the battlefield if he was being or, uh, considerate, uh, tall and sundry. In the 12th and 13th century, chivalry played a part in warfare, but it was more... It, chivalry for that, at that time was more of an insurance policy for other knights. The, the knights could, and nobility could afford to pay the premiums, which were the expensive equipment, armour, horses, so that if they were to be defeated in battle, they could surrender and have their lives spared and be ransomed for a lot of money. These people had wealthy connections and land which could be used to free them. For the poorer people, um, 
there is misconception. Poor people were actually ransomed for whatever they could. The, the lesser soldiers, you know, the, the, the common infantry soldier, would ransom poorer people. And, and in fact, um, as explained in my book, they could even dig up cemeteries and take out the bodies and ransom the bodies. Uh, that The going rate for a, a corpse was half the price of a living person so they could go back and have a decent burial. Um, so it did apply all, all around. For example, 1119, the Battle of Bremil, a very famous example. There are up, meant to be up to 900 knights, probably an exaggeration, but only three knights were killed in the battle. And the chronicler says because they knew each other and wanted to, were given each other consideration for Christian brethrenship. But when you go into the um, later period, into, certainly into the Hundred Years' War, it counted for less and less. Uh, prisoners were more likely to be killed. And there are many reasons for that. And there's not one, one reason. But as population grew, there's less likely that the knights would actually know each other individually. Before, they would train in tournaments, which were the, the uh, um, equivalent of military exercises on Salisbury Plains. So they, they would get on their horses and use infantry as well in these tournaments, range over vast acres of land and fight each other, not kill each other. Accidents happened, but it was like a sport, and they kind of knew each other. But as the Middle Ages developed and population grew up to a point, and also due to the effects of national identity and wars becoming slightly, that element of bitterness creeping in, there was less likely um, the there's less likely uh, possibility of being preserved just on account of chivalry. It did happen, and indeed by 1300, um, one uh, person, a chap called Pierre Dubois was writing that warfare should not. He wrote a tract called "How Wars Should Be Shortened," and he didn't say about. He said you should avoid battles and sieges and just concentrate on attacking the population and, and the countryside as the best way to fight a war. And by that time, it was considered, that was considered the nature of warfare. And whatever no- warfare was, was considered chivalrous because it was dominated by the knights, at least in terms of, of leadership. So there was... Um, the, so the 11th and, and... Sorry, the 12th and 13th centuries were... There was an element of that for the knights against knights, and it still persisted until the end of the Middle Ages, but less, increasingly less. But for the general population, for the poor bloody infantry, as ever, the same consideration wasn't extended. OK, so in conclusion, warfare was cruel then, it's cruel now, and basically it brings out the worst in us. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So it's quite an, an, a negative um, a, a view, but I think it's, that's what's important, um, is to show that within, within the context of war... Uh, good people can be capable of good things, but the worst in people can come out too. Um, there is a divide in the book between the leaders who are following this military imperative and giving these orders to Saint Massacre, but also, of course, human nature being what it is. Some individuals will use this as a cover to commit crime, rapes, and all sorts of things uh, because law and order has largely broken down. So, yes, it, war does tend to bring out the worst in in, in people. That was Sean McGlynn, whose Sword and Fire is on sale in paperback this month. His feature on the subject is in the August issue of the magazine, on sale in all good newsagents in the UK for just £3.60. And even better, you can save money and ensure you never miss an issue by subscribing. We have great subscription deals available whether you're in the UK or overseas. Go to our website, bbchistorymagazine.com, for details. That's it. Thanks as ever for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. Look out for our next instalment of the podcast in a couple of weeks' time. It's going to be a Second World War special in light of the 70th anniversary of the start of the war in September. It'll be good stuff. Don't miss it.